From the grassroots media team at Weave News, this is Interweaving. Welcome to episode eight of Interweaving. I'm John Collins. On today's episode, Nicole Rocher speaks with two archaeology professors about their recent work in New York State's North Country region, including the storied Adirondack Mountains, and about the importance of their findings within their local communities and beyond. Welcome to Interweaving. I'm Nicole Rocher. On July 18, 2019, I visited the Camp Union archaeological dig site in Potsdam. There, Dr. Hadley Kruzik aaron professor of archaeology at the State University of New York at Potsdam, was finishing a month-long field school with 12 archaeology students. Camp Union was a Civil War training camp where hundreds of soldiers lived and trained under Colonel Jonah Sanford during a five-month period from 1861 to 1862. According to historical sources, the training camp once included a barracks capable of housing a thousand men, a hospital, a cooking room, a dining hall, and drill fields. Dr. Kruzik Aaron took me around the various dig sites, which were covered by small tents to block the intense sun and other weather. Along the way, she pointed out a few of her team's recent discoveries, including several post holes confirming a structure had once been located at the site. Was because Camp Union was only around for five months, and so they wouldn't have really needed a big, substantial building foundation. Right? They just needed the structure to stand for five months. Um, and so what's become apparent is that it's post-in-ground construction, so they're using posts and post holes set, set into the ground to provide the supports for the structure. And so we're finding post holes. That's what they've found here. You can see... The dark stains go down into our subsoil. We call that clay that they're coming up on the subsoil. You can see, Dakota, can you point out the post hole feature right there? Do you see it's like a triangle that dips down into the gray soil? So the dark continues longer than everywhere else. Oh. And it's the same right there. You see where this is. Dr. Kruzik Aaron said agricultural practices in the past century and a half since the camp's closing have made it challenging to study the site's original context. But what's, what we're dealing with is that this landscape has been plowed. So that's affecting how we're seeing the post holes because they're really being kind of cut in half by the plow. So when the plow comes along and churns up all this, we're only seeing the bottom of the, the post hole, right? And so they look a little shorter than they would normally look. Um, but that's what we're seeing. Dr. Kruzik Aaron's team found burned animal bones, the results of a meal, along with ceramic, glass, and other building materials at the site. Some of that has been burned, so it may be that they're burning their trash out here as a way to control for the amount of refuse that is being generated by a thousand people out here. So we're finding burned ceramic, melted glass, the bone has been burned. Um, so we're still trying to figure out the function of this building, and that's, it's a shame that 
the landscape is pretty clean. And so that is also suggestive, perhaps, of function, that I would think if it had been the barracks, we'd be finding more things. If it had been something that had more activity, it would leave behind more of a record of that activity. And so the fact that it's not leaving behind a lot of activity um, maybe is suggestive more of that it was like a warehouse type structure. Um, so, you know, we, we also think about that too, the quantity of material here. The quantity is also being affected by the fact that we know that after this camp was no longer being used as a camp, when, it, um, when the men shipped out to battle, they auctioned off all of the buildings out here, and people came and took them apart and salvaged all the materials. So that definitely affects the signature of this experience, right? So you can imagine if a building was standing and then it decays over time, right, and it falls into itself, right, with all the nails and all the glass and all of the brick and mortar that is usually a part of a building that leaves behind a major trace, right? And so we're not seeing a lot of architectural materials either. We're finding some, which makes me feel comfortable saying that this is a building based on not only the post hole features, but also the fact that we're finding cut nails, brick and flat glass, things like that. But we're finding a lot less of it because of the salvage that's going on with the building materials out here. So that makes it challenging. So the plow zone makes it challenging out here, and then the salvaging makes it really hard for us to see a signature of what was going on. Because we really depend on the stuff that people leave behind to make inferences, you know, to um, understand what was happening out here. So let me go here and take the Dr. Kruzik Aaron said archaeologists take great care to keep detailed records and to preserve as much as possible the original context of their findings. Historical archaeologists use whatever written materials they can to flesh out a portrait of the people and artifacts they study, including maps, drawings, newspaper records, and personal accounts. But those materials can only tell archaeologists so much about who might have lived or worked in a place. You know, because history has been written by the winners, you know, that the, the papers that are left behind, you know, are only written from people who are literate, that are, those are the things that end up in the archives. And, and then it's filtered even further because only the important people, in my air quotes here, important people, their archive, their materials have been selected to be archived, right? So all of the records that we have are, you know, have been filtered, right? And it's often those who have the power, whose records have been preserved and whose perspectives have been preserved in the historical record. That certainly has changed over the past few decades as social history has become more dominant and certainly historians have been able to mine these records for different perspectives. But the dominant, you know, there are, there are these major filters on what has been left and recorded that has limited um, what has been written, certainly. And certainly there's been an evolving notion of who's worth writing about and whose experience matters. Um, and so I think the kind of work that I do allows us to get in the cracks, right, to, to, 
to to approach history from different perspectives, often from perspectives that haven't been included in narratives before. So here at the, the Civil War Training Ground, it could be the common soldier. It could be the women of the community who were supporting this, this training ground, you know, by cooking the food. They were employed to cook here and prepare you know, their meals three times a day. We have women in the community who were donating meals and supplies. You know, so it may be, you know, um, giving voice or not giving voice. I really hate that kind of me giving them voice, but allowing, you know, room for those perspectives and those experiences to be elevated and um, highlighted in ways that they haven't been before. Um, so whether that's at the John Brown farm where my goal was to look at the family's experience, the women of the family, the children's experience, or you know, I've done work at um, trying to explore the Timbuktu story, which is this African-American farming settlement in the Adirondacks, trying to find the experience of the African-American farmers who lived there you know, whose stories haven't been told well, in part because of racism um, and bias, um, and in part because we don't have a lot of written records from them to let them speak for themselves. Um, Dr. Kruzik Aaron said archaeology is not just about digging up the past, but about how the past can help us move forward. My hope is that by choosing projects that um, highlight those experiences, that that can reframe how we understand things that we think we already understand and make people realize that it's not just dead, rich, white people who make history. All of those people make history, you know, and that we can't tell the story of America without including all of these stories in, in that understanding. And that how we understand ourselves today is grounded in our understanding of the past. You know, we think we understand our past and... And if how we understand ourselves today is grounded in a flawed understanding of that past, then it's going to complicate our present and our future, and it's going to lead us to where we are, frankly, um, which is a nation that hasn't truly grappled with its history. And so if I can, in my small way, help carve out spaces for us to rethink that experience and this past, then maybe we can rethink our present and our future. Right. Emily Willis, a senior at SUNY Potsdam majoring in archaeology and one of Dr. Kruzik Aaron's teaching assistants, so taking a historical archaeology class with Dr. K.A., as she's often known, absolutely changed her life. After she graduates in the spring, she plans to earn her master's and eventually her Ph.D. 
She wants to study the archaeology of death in Western Europe in the 19th century. Yeah, I'm very fascinated by burial practices, rituals, how folklore and, and uh, religious beliefs or magic, magical beliefs, you know, may have played a role, um, especially during the later half of the 19th century when you have, like, spiritualism come in and, you know, that, that desire to connect with the other side. Willis said archaeology was the closest we can get to time travel. She still gets chills thinking about who might have been the last person to handle an artifact. She said it was crucial that archaeologists approach their work with the utmost care and respect. There's this this theory called post-processual archaeological theory, and it basically says no matter how hard we try, there's always going to be bias in there, you know, from us because we can't talk to the to the past people, so we can't say for absolutely certain what happened or how they used things or how they viewed the world. One of the tenets of post-processual archaeology is archaeology is a political act and you can't direct how it's going to be received or interpreted by the public or by anybody, you know what I mean? It's like you write something, you know, and you send it out into the world like a book, right? And what the audience does with that book is now theirs. You always have to come at archaeology with that in mind, you know, that your actions are a political act, that they are going to be interpreted in many different ways. Last summer, Willis had an opportunity to participate in a field school in the Adirondacks with Dr. Tim Messner, associate professor of archaeology at SUNY Potsdam, where the discovery of a centuries-old projectile point helped to establish the presence of indigenous peoples in the Adirondacks long before many had thought possible. But archaeology comes in and it gets to add another layer of truth and it gets to check these narratives that we've accepted for so long, you know. And, and I just, th- like, like, look at what we did last summer. You know, we helped dispel this myth that nobody lived in the Adirondacks. So five to 7,000 years ago, there are absolutely people there. You know. You're listening to Interweaving, a podcast of conversation and context from Weave News. Contributions from readers and listeners play a central role in helping us continue and expand our grassroots media-making efforts. If you'd like to support our work, just visit weavenews.org donate. Now, back to the show. Back in our studio, I spoke with Dr. Messner about that field school in the Adirondacks last summer and about other recent work he and his colleagues at SUNY Potsdam have been doing. To begin, I asked Dr. Messner about his classes and about the bow drill demonstration he'd done at a local high school just minutes before our interview. Okay. Um, so I teach archaeology at SUNY Potsdam, and I teach a range of courses, everything from intro general survey courses dealing with the deep history, the deep human history, so the evolution of our species through the rise of domesticated plants and animals to the beginnings of complex civilizations and power and inequality present within them to more upper division courses that focus specifically on ancient Eastern North America. I'm interested in technology, old tools and technologies and how they can 
enable us to better understand the past, but also to better understand the present and perhaps the future in terms of sustainable uh, engagements with the environment and local economies. I was just in Colton Pierpont uh, doing a bow drill fire demonstration slash workshop with six high school students in an environmental history class. And four of the six were able to make fire using nothing but these ancient techniques. And all six were well on their way. So even the two that didn't, for the most part, did well and would have had it if we had a couple more minutes. Dr. Messner explained the difference between historical archaeology and the type of archaeology he does working in deep time. Yeah, I mean, it's for the most part the same thing. Uh, It's just the periods of time that you deal with tend to differ. And some of the data sources tend to differ, for instance. In dealing with the more recent past, the last several hundred years in this country, you're given the advantage of having written records, right? So historical archaeologists most definitely focus on material culture, the stuff left behind, but part of that is written records. Um, When you're dealing with the more ancient past, you don't have that luxury. Um, So yeah, that's largely the difference between the two disciplines, I'd say. I asked Dr. Messner about what he had set out to study during his recent field school in the Adirondacks and what he and his students had found during their time there. So I've been interested in the Adirondacks since moving to the North Country because it's an area, a six million acre area, that's poorly understood. Um, There's a lot of mythology surrounding the ancient history of the Adirondacks, for instance, if you ask locals, um, locals of European descent, they're quick to point out that nobody lived in the Adirondacks prior to the arrival of white settlers for the most part. Which is ironic because if you look around, there are archaeological sites that date to hundreds, if not thousands, of years ago, right? So there are sites from ancient native peoples that go back 12,000 years. So I've been interested in looking at this deep history, one, to help revise that understanding of it being an empty, pristine, untouched wilderness prior to the arrival of Europeans, and two, to get a better sense of you know what these ancient folks were doing in the mountains. There are sites over 3,000 feet in the high peaks. So they're not just around lakes. These folks were traveling high into the mountains. It's awesome. It's awesome. And it's largely discounted and certainly poorly understood. I asked Dr. Messner about what artifacts had been recovered from the site. There's been a range of artifacts recovered from the mountains, these upland settings, everything from ancient native pottery. So you've got beautiful ceramics made by indigenous peoples hundreds of years ago, and some of the pottery even is over a thousand years in age. But there's also projectile points, so everything from arrowheads to uh, stone tools predating the bow and arrow 
So addle addle dart tips, for instance, but also spear tips, knives, those sorts of things. There's been fishing equipment found. There's been woodworking equipment found. There's been uh, bone from several different species of mammals, beaver, black bear, white-tailed deer. So yeah, there's quite a bit in the mountains. He said doing archaeology here in the North Country over these past seven years has changed and deepened his understanding of the place. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I appreciate being able to gain a greater understanding of one's backyard. And especially when that can be in connection with people whose ancestors are responsible for making producing these archaeological sites. Right? So working with descendant communities at Aquasasne, right? Folks at the Six Nations Indian Museum in the Adirondacks, right? In collaboration and partnership and consultation, right? To better understand their deep history in the mountains. And one that folks have long discounted and straight up denied. So it's, I don't know. It's meaningful to me, at least, and hopefully to others. Like his colleague, Dr. Kruzik Aaron, Dr. Messner said archaeology can be a powerful tool for pursuing social justice, something he is mindful of in his own work, and something he sees as an important part of SUNY Potsdam's archaeology program. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We're pretty proud of the fact that we have a number of students in our department who are from Aquasasne. We have indigenous archaeologists. So the idea being to arm them with the tools and know-how and then they can go forth and engage not necessarily the same as a Western archaeologist, but one with a greater tool set and that they have their own customs, beliefs, and interpretations. And they can speak the talk of archaeologists and understand the literature and whatnot, but they can take ownership and push, force the discipline in a new direction. I'm trying to change the narrative, right? It, amongst locals in the area, that no longer can we discount people's attachment to this place. But there is a long history of native peoples, indigenous peoples in the mountains, and it needs to be recognized. You know, they're not just the public, they're the original, I mean, they're the original peoples. Dr. Messner said while he has focused interests, he doesn't necessarily have a particular philosophy he brings to his work. I don't know about a personal philosophy. I have certain kinds of interests and questions that run through my mind and influence what I do and where I do it and such. Um, I certainly come at archaeology with a, a large amount of respect. Um, Respect for descended communities, respect for indigenous populations. Um, I tend to be interested in people and their relationship to the environment. 
fascinated by the ways in which people have come up with cultural and technological innovations that have enabled them to live in very remote, harsh, barren regions of the world, not just live, but thrive and come up with beautiful, sophisticated life ways. Uh, the Adirondacks fits into that. Again, this narrative that it's a harsh, barren place. The word even means bark eater or they eat trees, right? And that's been used to fuel this narrative, which is kind of, I don't know, I've, I've pointed out in presentations and such that the Sami of northern Scandinavia have a long tradition of removing the bark from certain kinds of trees, uh, white birch and white pine, during the early spring when the saps are flowing because the inner bark is full of vitamin C. And so here you have people eating bark, right, eating trees, and they're doing it. <laughs> in a sophisticated way, right? Because this is a time when vitamin C is, is, is scarce. A couple years ago, we wanted to hit home this idea. And so we, we being myself and my students, hosted a, a pancake, an Adirondack pancake breakfast. And the pancakes were made with white pine bark. And they had, so the whole breakfast was based on stuff that you can get in the Adirondacks to show that it wasn't this barren starving ground, right? That in fact, you can eat the bark. Here are delicious pancakes. The students tapped trees on campus, made maple syrup that was drizzled over the top. They had blueberries inside. Again, the Adirondacks known for their wonderful blueberries. For the meat lovers, there were crickets, edible insects, right? Inside some of them, if you so chose. Uh, and duck eggs. And again, maybe they were loons, maybe they were geese, but eggs are certainly plentiful. And we served it to the public. People paid to come eat pine bark pancakes. My family, for months afterward, when making pancakes, would put pine bark powder, pine bark flour in them. So again, to bring it back here, you know, say bark eater, people think of it in a derogatory way, but really... You know, it's a genius way of getting a vitamin C-rich resource during the late winter, early spring. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. So, yeah, again, I'm interested in the Adirondacks, this upland environment long thought to be harsh. And it certainly is a cold place, but no colder than many regions of the world where people have long lived. Dr. Messner said misunderstandings about the Adirondacks' deep history aren't particular to this region, but are part of a widespread cultural myth in this country. He said it's important to set the record straight. Yeah, I think it's a, a smaller example of a much larger uh, tendency, right? Much of North America was deemed uninhabited unimproved and therefore ripe for colonization. And it's, well, problematic for many, many reasons and downright wrong for many, many reasons. One of which was people's inability to understand the way in which folks engage with the environment. So, right, from a white European perspective, you clear the forest and you plow it and you plant wheat or what have you. People had a deep history of manipulating the environment in such a way that unless you know what you're looking at, you can't even recognize that people are playing a part in that environment. 
controlled burns to reset ecological clocks, managing orchards in order to encourage the mass production. Uh, these are examples of people's fingerprints on the land that are largely unseen, unless you know what you're looking at. So yeah, the Adirondacks is just a smaller example of a much larger thing that happened in this country by saying it's uninhabited, unimproved. The past is not the past. The past is still alive. People live right with this legacy every day. <laughs> uh, and as people who tell stories about the past, we need to be conscious of the power that these stories have. For Interweaving, this is Nicole Roche. As always, visit weavenews.org slash interweaving for more information on the people and organizations featured on our show. Interweaving is a production of Weave News, weaving the world together, one underreported story at a time. Our engineer is Terry Dubray, and our theme music is provided by Bee Children. For more exciting grassroots media content, find us online at weavenews.org or on social media at Weave News. There you can find out how you can support or join us in our work. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for another episode of Interweaving.